Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Stephanie Martin, who goes by Sam, um, to talk about her new book, Decoding the Digital Church, Evangelical Storytelling and the Election of Donald Trump. This was published in 2021 by the University of Alabama Press, and it is a really, really interesting study um, in understanding what is going on to some degree in big churches, mega churches um, around politics, particularly around the election of Donald Trump. But I'm going to let Sam tell us about that. I'd like to welcome Sam to the New Books in Political Science podcast and ask us to ask her to tell us a bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Sam. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really, really glad to be here with you. And uh, the genesis of my project actually reaches back, wow, getting to be more than a decade now uh, when I was um, in graduate school at the University of California, San Diego. And my advisor then, Robert Horowitz, um, this was way back when um, at the in the final uh, stages of George uh, W. Bush's presidency. So um, and the catastrophes of the Iraq War and Hurricane Katrina and the initial stages of uh, the financial crisis that really swept the world in 2008. And my advisor at the time, uh, who, is a, who, who teaches in the communication department at UCSD, but is trained as a sociologist, we were just talking and he was deciding and, and there was a consortium of folks at UCSD, an interdisciplinary consortium that was coming together to study conservatism in the United States. Amy Binder, who has since published a really excellent book, was part of that. And the idea, in a really lay sense, was maybe if we could understand the thinking of people we didn't agree with, we would feel less angry. And so he actually, so so we would meet together most Wednesdays and have lunch, sometimes have speakers, sometimes just talk about ideas. And uh, my advisor, Robert Horwitz, he ended up writing a book called America's Right that is also excellent. Uh, And I was um, at that point uh, working on a dissertation and trying to 
really find something studyable. Uh, I think that's a word, <laughs> studyable. And uh, it was hard. It's hard for lots of people when they're just learning how to do research to figure out something that they can uh, find and, and, and do. And I was really interested at that point. It was in the aftermath of the Tea Party. And there was some new research coming out by uh, Theta Scotchpole about how evangelicals were sort of overrepresented as a population in the, in the Tea Party movement. And I found that really interesting uh, because I also knew from this consortium that I was part of that uh, most evangelicals tended to be sort of middle, middle class or lower middle class. And so it struck me as interesting that they uh, would join a movement that uh, was so interested in maintaining the economic hegemony uh, against Barack Obama. So like I say, it was sort of crossing over from the end of the Bush years to the beginning of the Obama presidency. Uh, And so to make a long story short, I started to try to figure out how economic conservatism and religious conservatism were knit together. Um, That led me into the scholar's bane of existence, the ongoing Google search. Um, I discovered one web, I discovered one web blog by um, a pastor at the time in Southern California named Todd Bolsinger. He now has become a sort of up and coming evangelical writer and Fuller Seminary uh, faculty member. Uh, that led me, he actually is a very, I can understand why he's an up and coming voice in evangelicalism because he's a very dynamic preacher uh, and I'm, an, I'm a runner. <laughs> so I started listening to his sermons and couldn't stop. And I was, and so, um, I realized that I am sort of a junkie for listening to sermons. <laughs> and um, I realized that I wanted to study the words of pastors and how pastors speak to audiences. And that led me to uh, do the beginning of the research, the first part of the research, which was to listen to how pastors in megachurches uh, talked about the recession and framed for their congregations, how they should respond to economic catastrophes. I thought that that research was done. I actually was preparing to put out a book manuscript in about 2016. Then Donald Trump got elected uh, largely on, uh, in largely because of evangelical voters. Uh, so I pulled that book back and re and, 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 and jumped in and did a lot more listening to sermons to try to understand how it was that those voters could have supported Trump. And so that's a very long explanation of how this book came about. Well, I mean, the, the genesis makes sense now that you've sort of explained sort of the origins of it and, and sort of also coming out of this um, study group or this, this interdisciplinary program to explore conservatism. Um, and, and you also talk about in, in the introduction, you talk a little bit about early on um, that you, you know, you're sort of interested in evangelicalism. You're, and you're not opposed to it, but you haven't been, I don't want to say captured by it, but that um, you haven't you haven't become part of. Can you talk a little bit about your sort of separation from it in that regard as a scholar? Right. So I think if it's fair, I, I mean, I appreciate this. So um, my training as a scholar is a little bit, uh, the program ACSD, I appreciate it very much for a couple of reasons. One reason is that Communication pro- programs sometimes get um, 
a bad reputation. I don't need to go into exactly why that is. But UCSD as a program is, is very interesting because most of the graduate faculty there do not have degrees in communication. And it's almost more of a cultural studies program. It's, it's really just a critical communication uh, program. And so that's the, that's the beginning. So almost from day one, you are asked to take account of your subjectivity as a researcher. And there's very limited attention paid to what one might refer to as like mainstream communication. Uh, there's, not, there's really very little quantitative research that happens there. And it's always like a question of what's your subjectivity. And so that caused me as I was going into this, when I was an undergraduate um, at Boise State University, which, uh, was a, which is in Idaho, which is a very conservative state, um, down the, this is actually an interesting story that I don't get to in the book, but down in the student union building on Sundays, uh, was a church led by none other than Brian Fisher, um, who is, was for a while at the American Family Association after he got fired from the church that he was planting there. And um, has you know he's on like the right wing watch. He's not a good person, but he started this church in the student union building at Boise State. And so I would wander down and attend this church because it was happening in my student union. And I was like lots of undergraduates, just trying to figure out what I believed in my own life and had some, you know, just wanted to, wanted to do that. So I started going to this church and sort of, I call it like I tried out being an evangelical and it had a great worship band and it had all the bells and whistles that come with what can be contemporary evangelicalism. And, uh, I wanted I wanted it. I wanted to believe, right? I, I, I've always been very interested in religion. I've always wanted to believe, um, but somewhere deep inside, I just didn't. Um, and I, what I really didn't understand, and this is the beginning, I think, of my research question that came to fruition all these years later. I didn't understand the cruelty in the rhetoric, the lack of grace, the lack of attention to vulnerable constituencies. It's like when people ask me, "What's your question?" My answer is usually like in layman's terms, what I'm trying to understand is why don't Christians care about poor people, <laughs> right? Why do they, wh- what is their problem with the American poor? And um, that was my question when I went to this church. And so I come back to that. So when I was coming into this study, um, this was always sort of like sitting in my gut. I have to remember not to study myself um, and not to make this a sort of navel-gazing project. And that's where I was very grateful that though I was in this cultural studies milieu of critical communication, um, my advisor, who I keep talking about because I, I really appreciate him, he is trained as a sociologist, and he would say to me, don't you dare become one of those people who doesn't have evidence. You have to have evidence, right? I don't want you to write a dissertation. I don't want you to write a book where you that's nihilistic and just points out everything that's wrong but doesn't have evidence. And so that is really the reason that I ended up doing this study of rich rhetorical and textual analysis of sermons uh, because I, I was very aware of my subjectivity, but at the same time, I wanted to do something that would withstand scrutiny in the social sciences and that I could say, no, I do have evidence. I do have this thing that can withstand um, scrutiny. And, and you do sort of talk about this is the, the sort of basis of the book and the basis of the study is indeed quite complex because you're pulling together different components in understanding not only conservative 
white evangelicalism, which is the subject matter that you're looking at, and specifically the digital mega churches that, you know, you can watch their sermons on a regular basis. But you're also threading that into the broader political dynamic of the role of white evangelicals in politics in the United States, specifically with the narrative around American exceptionalism. I think I got all the pieces there, but I'm not quite sure. <laughs> and and so can you sort of unpack that thesis a little bit and talk about the various threads that you are combining in this fascinating study? Right. So there is a pretty good amount of research that's come out sort of beginning with John Fay's book, Believe Me, that um, tries to explain um, and and Kristen Dumez's book really builds on this with her. So so there's John Fay's book, Believe Me, and Dumez's book that's had a lot of attention, um, Jesus and John Wayne, that really situates um, evangelical political storytelling and political prioritization of um, really the Republican Party as being based in a nostalgic rendering of the American past that understands American exceptionalism as God's gift to the United States. You are an exceptional country. I want you to be exceptional and you have everything you need right there to be the greatest nation that ever existed. And um, indeed, that's a lot of what I heard in the sermon. So, so my study, I, I listened to more than a hundred sermons during the time period of the great recession and then more than 50 sermons across the country um, in the, uh, in the after, uh, during the campaign between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And pastors would routinely say, like, this is the greatest nation that's ever existed, and we have to defend that. Um, and so that is a good explanation, and, 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 that is, and, 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 and that's a good understanding of how this constituency tends to frame rhetorically the United States. But what I argue in the book, or what you hear in these churches, is that that is an incomplete, I think that's an incomplete uh, understanding of what is happening in terms of why, how they manage to make peace or deal with the cognitive dissonance of Donald Trump, especially existing as a GOP standard bearer who um, was nothing like those candidates who came before, whether we're talking about Ronald Reagan or George Bush or even George Bush Sr., maybe even Mitt Romney as a Mormon. And to understand this, the first thing that I like to point out to people is that there is a stereotype of white evangelicals as being politically obsessive, right? That they are as interested in politics at all times as your most uh, politically obsessed uncle, <laughs> that they all want to talk about politics all the time. And this is simply not true. Some of them, right, are like your politically obsessed uncle. And at Thanksgiving, all they want to talk about is, you know, how the Democrats are spending the nation into oblivion. But a lot of them would rather talk about sports or scrapbooking or fishing, right? They are no more comfortable talking about politics than anybody else, right? And they are as turned off by it. And so the first thing that I like to point out is that uh, they they're, they don't talk about politics all the time in these churches. They're not bast they're not like bastions of political speech. It's not happening constantly. And second, especially during the period of time between Clinton between the election of Clinton and Trump, when pastors would take up the election, what they would say is, "This is the greatest democracy that ever existed, and you have to vote." 
right? Your, your responsibility as a citizen and a Christian is to participate in this democracy. That affirms the, se- the thesis that Faye and others have said that you have to defend this. But then they would do this rhetorical slip, which was to say, but if you're worried, if you're worried that this is a bad election or the nation's never going to recover or we're going to hell in a handbasket, guess what? God has already got this. You are already a, you are already a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. You are a dual citizen, all these things. And what I call that is, I, I say that that like lets them rhetorically off the hook. And it frames everything in terms of hope, in terms of what's possible. And it, obli- it, it, it elides any possibility of peril or darkness. Nothing bad can truly happen. And so there's this sense, I call it the rhetoric of active passivism, which I'm not sure is the best term, but it's like, be active, participate but then be passive. You are not responsible for what happens next. And it's a very um, insidious, it's much more insidious um, political uh, discourse than one that sees all evangelicals as uh, ready to storm the Capitol on January 6th. And, And this is what is really interesting in the sort of research that you're doing is that this advocacy for participation in politics as a responsibility um, among this particular community or all communities, but as you know, the sermons are, are articulating this, is something that everybody should be doing. Um, but then you don't have to be responsible for being involved in the democracy. Right. Which is right. a little bit incoherent. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a really difficult thing to explain. And it took me a long time to find language. And I don't know how successful I was in the book. I hope I was. I, I wrote and rewrote these sentences. But because the thing that people like secular citizens or people who don't share this faith sometimes have a hard time wrapping their heads around is that this is a very valid spiritual belief from a theological standpoint it makes it's absolutely fair and good to believe um, in heaven and a life that hereafter, and in the idea that God um, ultimately controls the universe, right? Like if if you identify as an evangelical Christian, that is what you believe, and, and if you don't, then it makes no sense to have that faith, right? So that's what you believe. That is a fair and valid spiritual belief. And what I mean is that secular citizens sometimes want to say that's invalid. Well, it's valid on Sundays in church. It's a valid way to organize your life. But that is, that's a spiritual belief. That's an immaterial belief. Okay. Um, it, is, it is something that one holds to. It's metaphysical. And what happens in the discourse is they translate that spiritual belief into tangible material objects, which are votes. And that is what I that is what I find to be um, a sort of that's invalid in my mind in terms of like you know the the scholar in me as a political as 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 a political matter in political philosophy that's invalid. You take something spiritual and you make it tangible, and when you make it tangible, then you're violating the social con you're violating the social contract because your votes add up, right? And they have material consequences. And so when you say those material consequences are not your fault because God did it, that's, that, is, that doesn't work. You did it. You and your cohort did it when you voted for that. And, you, and, and, and this is where you get a kind of double speaker trying to have it both ways because, well, yes, we voted. We voted for 
um, the Supreme Court justices that we like. We voted for the tax cuts that we're in favor of. We voted um, to try to uh, have this curriculum in the schools. But we didn't vote for family separation at the border. We didn't vote for a president who speaks about women in these ways. Yes, you did. <laughs> right? You voted, you, you ha- you're responsible for the things you don't like to. And that's where, that's where the slip occurs. And that is, you know, as I tell people, if there's anything you can take from my work, it's that the storytelling, you can point out to them the way that they can't, they can't work both ways. And, and this is what I was finding so fascinating in reading your work is also understanding this, this role of narrative and storytelling um, in terms of the sermons, because, you know, we, there's so much narrative in politics and I work with narrative and the United States is wed to its narratives um, in so many ways uh, because they're also shorter. <laughs> the narratives haven't been around as long. Um, and so I, I would love for you to explain a little bit more about the way that the pastors take on this role of storytelling um, particularly in terms of weaving this American exceptionalism into so much of what they're talking about. Yeah, so um, a lot of people, one of the most common questions when people ask me about my research, then they look at me and they're like, isn't it really boring, right, to listen to these terms? Like, that sounds terribly boring. And I study exclusively megachurches. So one of the strengths and weaknesses of my research is that it's exclu- like in a megachurch has like at least 2000 members that attend it. And so people who lead these churches are very good public speakers. So it's not that boring if you're like me and you like this kind of rhetoric because they're really good speakers, right? These are like the best of the best. Um, And then a lot of them rely on what I call in the book, it's called, I call it founders rhetoric. And what they do is they tell a story about the United States that situates the country as being its most authentic self, right? And, and, and the country really is a character, right? It's, it's, it's not a land, it's, not, it's a character. And the country was at its most authentic at the moment of the founding. And, so, and, and when they tell that story of founders rhetoric and the country was the most itself when it was originally founded, what that does is it endows these mythical founders of which it's always interesting because they, the founders that they're speaking of are, the, you know, the same ones we're talking about. We're talking about Washington. We're talking about John Adams. We're talking about um, Jefferson. It's like, they, they only know like four founders, but we'll set that to the side. Um, these founders, they then endow with not just a Christian faith, but a, a conservative evangelical faith. And, what that does when they when they tell a story and they begin with the founding and they begin with the, they and then they talk about founders rhetoric they, they, these men made the country in this evangelical way uh, what it does and to go back to my earlier question about why don't they care about poor people or American poor people what it does is it situates evangelicals as having a first uh, claim to the nation's benefits. Right. So evangelicals come first because they're the ones who are living in the most authentically American way. And that is that is the um, warrant that allows them 
to make the claims like they're the ones for whom the First Amendment is really for, the religious protections and even the speech protections. They're the ones whose taxes uh, really, uh, they're the ones whose taxes should um, inform the social programs that we're going to uh, take, take advantage of. They're the ones who should determine American foreign policy. Right, because they are the most authentic Americans, and and this, the only word that I have, the best word is just this whole thing is like so insidious, because it it just explains so much about how the movement remains so white, so traditionalist, and so certain of its uh, understanding of who the nation is and what the nation stands for. And inside a culture where everyone agrees to the, the rules of the game in terms of who's, who gets to go to heaven, who gets to be an American, it's very hard to pierce it and point out the ways that it's wrong. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and and again this was in in terms of thinking back to um sarah palin talking about real americans in 2008 um and and seeing that mostly as centered on rural americans as opposed to where most americans live um i i some of this is is also wrapped up in that idea of who is the real american in the united states and it also suggests that not everybody is right that there is an exclusionariness about it um which is fascinating for a country that you know sort of has this diversity of population it's it's really fascinating and and the thing that i i find myself thinking of when i was i i thought about all the time is the way that the narrative is bereft of obligation um, because we um, we there, there's no sense of you know even American exceptionalism. One of the things that all the literatures that we talk about when when, when we talk about evangelicals and American exceptionalism and the idea that these these are people who believe in the United States as, a, as, as being the city on the hill, or even to add Reagan's, um, the shining city on the hill, right? But American exceptionalism, it's supposed to be, or, or, or most scholars understand it as like, if it is something that America offers the world, right? We are an example, right? But for evangelicals, it is, we deserve, we merit, we have been given by God, we are blessed right this there's 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 a sort of this this empty 
And so what, what po- the political rhetoric of evangelicals has done is it has, it is, it is, it's an empty shell of obligation. And I, I even write briefly about how, and, and this is the, the blending of um, economic conservative, conservatism since Milton Friedman um, with, uh, with the uh, religious rhetoric of evangelicals, the way that the tradition, like, like before the 1980s, the way that when, if you look at like Burkean conservatism, that was based in a sense of obligation to generations past, present and future. The idea that, that there's a, there's a debt that has to be paid to, to the past and to the generations yet to come. And none of that exists anymore. It's like, no, we just, what, what do we get because we believe the right things. We believe the right things about the country and we believe the right things about God. And that's, it's, it's really strange. Um, and, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about some of the particular aspects that you work through in the book. Um, and one of the, one of the topics that I found really interesting is you sort of look at the way that culture, the culture wars, this idea of broken culture, culture framed in perilous terms is worked into so many of these um, narratives and the storytelling and the sermons. And I'm wondering how that understanding of culture is defined by these pastors and by the churches and what we're talking about. Because you also talk about the fact that there's, you know, that, that there individual evangelicals, you know, are happy to have a nice gay couple down the street. Um, Mm -hmm. but they're still kind of opposed to the decisions made by the Supreme court. Right. Yeah. So one of the things, so uh, there is a sense, and if if you look at public opinion polls, you go to Pew or you go wherever you will see that a lot of evangelicals, uh, want to disavow and they regret the caustic culture wars of Jerry Falwell, James Dobson, the Christian Coalition, whatever. They're, they don't want to be part of that. And they think that it was a mistake. And they don't um, necessarily want to join forces with people who are still wanting to engage that. Some do, right? But very few. And there's a sense, and I would hear in the sermons over and over, I know you don't come to, like, this is dangerous, right? I'm going to talk about the campaign today, but I, uh, like, I'm nervous about doing it, right? Um, or people don't come to church to hear about who they should vote for, right? And what that is, that aligns with this idea that a lot of uh, research suggests a kind of uh, disavowal and loosening of the relationship between church going and political prioritization. Like people don't want to be really affiliated with that because they think it has, they'll say like, it hurts our witness, right? The church's witness in the world is harmed by too much uh, engagement with the culture wars. Um, And so that, that is affirmed in the, in the, in the sermons that I listen to, right? They're like, look, we were, that's a mistake. And so what you get is pastors talking a lot. And this leads to that passivism. I talked about pastors saying like, you know what? It's, it's, we, it's bad. There's a lot of abortions and there's, there's gay marriage now and Hollywood is terrible and people only care about consumer capitalism and all these things are going bad. And it would be great if people would just live like Christians, this wouldn't be so bad. So hint, hint, you should live better, right? You're probably part of the problem, but, um, 
you don't, if it's, it's going to be better in heaven where you already live. That's part of it. But I argue in the book that this is hugely problematic <laughs> that they do this because much we, we live, we hear about it all the time. We have this divided political discourse. We have people who on, we have Republicans and Democrats, right? We, we don't have, we don't like, we don't have nobody. We, we live in um, with the big sort and there's no cross-cultural cleavages and we don't like nobody's in bowling links together and all these things going on. And now we have some of the most influential pastors who now step on stage. They're all stages, not pulpits anymore. They step on stage and they disavow what their forebears built, but they don't take any responsibility for it. And they act like it primarily happened to them, right? And without saying, we, we built this, we participated in it, we caused harm. It's, we, we, we shouldn't have done it. What they're doing is perpetuating the possibility for harm to continue. Um, and so, again, you have the most vulnerable who remain the perpetrators and not the victims, right? Because they continue to say the culture is still corrupt in their minds, right? People who are gay are still the problem. People who have abortions are still murderers. People who are in debt are still to blame for their indebtedness. Uh, and, so, and they don't say anything about having created any of the animosity toward these populations. They just say, yep, it, it's bad. Don't participate. Feel okay. And I argue that that is until they take some responsibility for what has been created, um, they are almost as bad as, as, as the folks who built it in the first place. And, and so that's one of the stories that you talk about that is woven through a lot of the sermons, along with this discussion of American exceptionalism and the founder speak as you talk about it. Um, you also discuss this um, concept of their understanding or the even the members of the church and the pastors who are giving the sermons. I'm trying not to other people. Um this this idea of truth versus history, which I found really fascinating, um, because I think again it's kind of the letting off the hook a little bit. Um, can you talk about how the the pastors integrate this sort of conception of truth versus history? Trying to remember what you're talking about, I'm not um... that the the evangelical pastors present what they are doing and how they're living as truth versus the particular time period or the particular president or the particular issue as the historical context. Um, and so that, you know, Donald Trump or the recession are the history versus the, the life that you should be living as an evangelical Christian. When pastors talk, and, and this goes to, we haven't talked about it yet, but all the churches I study, to be included in my study, the, the they had to. I would I would stop and I would look to see. Um, I would look for a statement of faith, and all these churches affirmed very early in their statement of faith the idea that the Bible was authoritative was a common word, and or and typically would say that and in its original in its original writing was even inerrant. Right. So these are people who are um, operating from the idea that you can read the text of the Bible and know 
how to live. If the Bible, like they would say things like, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? And so they are operating from what we would call like truth with a capital T. They know what the truth is. And it's it's very easy. You just open the Bible and read how you should live. And there's always an answer that's coming. Even if the answer is, because it's God's will, right? This is happening as God's will. And so that's, it's very, it's, so, so there's always a formula. And so when you, when a pastor gives a sermon, they are operating from a space of truth with a capital T, right? So I'm standing here and I'm going to give a sermon and it's going to be the truth. And that truth is going to set you free. And so that truth is inside a context, right? And the context might be the recession. The context might be a campaign that you're uncomfortable about. That context might be, um, a, a, you know, we might have a president who's horrible. Um, but that has nothing to do. God is above that, and that is truth. And so what that means is that evangelicals are almost like insiders and outsiders at the same time. Okay. So they're insiders because they have the truth. They know uh, what the secret codes are and they know how you're supposed to live. And they, like we discussed earlier, they know what it means to be a true American because a true American is also an evangelical Christian. If the founders created the country in a particularly evangelical way, that then that means that to be a true American is to be an evangelical Christian. And so they have that truth, and they are the true insiders. That's why they have the first claim on the nation's benefits. But the culture is not living according to those rules. Like, look at all these people who don't know how they're supposed to live, right? And that's why they hate us. They hate us because we won't go along with what they want, and, that, and we are therefore persecuted, which is this really tricky sort of wordplay, because you are both authentically American and hegemonically so, and you're a persecuted minority who no one takes seriously. Okay. So you're insiders and you're outsiders. You have the truth and everyone else is living a lie. And so what this does is it creates a context where evangelicals are all the characters in the story who matter at all. Um, And so I wanted to ask you, about um, part of what you talk about towards the end of the book, which I also found really interesting, is um, the rhetoric of dissent um, and, and you know, sort of integrating female voices um, into the dialogue and that they weren't maybe always on the same wavelength as the male pastors. Um, can you tell me how you got got to this, this sort of conclusionary area um, and, and what you found? The, the point of rupture for all of us, I think, in the 2016 campaign was the moment of Access Hollywood. And I think until uh, November 8th, 2016, when Donald Trump um, won the election, almost everyone thought that after Access Hollywood, Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president. Uh, but what happened in the moment of Access Hollywood was that uh, public figure evangelicalism, Ralph Reed, Jerry Falwell Jr., James Dobson, they rallied around Trump. 
And they said, well, this is bad, but Hillary Clinton's still worse. Okay. And there was this kind of false equivalency that got drawn between uh, the person of Hillary Clinton and uh, the, the person of Donald Trump as represented in those tapes. And when that happened, when, when, when public figure evangelicalism rallied around Trump in that moment and did what they could uh, to salvage his candidacy, uh, women, public figure female evangelicalism uh, erupted. And in particular, um, Beth Moore uh, spoke out really for the first time in her career as uh, an evangelical figure. Um, there were some 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 women um, who like like Beth like Jen Hatmaker and Rachel Held Evans, who has since passed away. They also had been speaking out about Trump, but they were already seen as kind of uh, figures on the evangelical left. Like they had already done things that people said made them not necessarily uh, true uh, evangelical believers in a biblical sense. But Beth Moore was a Bible study writer and she was uh, part of the Southern Baptist Convention and she affirmed things like uh, complementarianism, which means, you know, like that was just essentially affirming patriarchy and all these things. And Beth Moore sent out a tweet that was like, this is, <laughs> as I say in my house to my, to my young sons, this is no right? Like, this is no. <laughs> and, um, and she just said, like, this is how women get treated. And we're not surprised. And people need to do better. And um, it was pretty shocking to have her do and say that and to speak out on behalf of women and against the men in the movement who were still trying to rally behind Trump, because that's just not done that you would speak out against the GOP presidential contender, apparently even in a moment like the Access Hollywood tapes. Well, then Trump got elected, and then um, Me Too broke out soon thereafter. And uh, Beth Moore continued to say, yeah, this is how women are treated even in the church. And at the same time, or because of Beth Moore, some women, um, including here in Texas, I write about in the book, some women started to say, maybe we shouldn't vote only based on these social cultural issues like abortion as we always have. And so, and what was very interesting was the way that they talked about um, supporting candidates. Like I read a little bit about how some of them supported Beto O'Rourke in 2018 against Ted Cruz, but they would have to do it and not tell their husbands, right? Some of them, they would, they would, or they would go to church with a Beto bumper sticker on their car and people would come up to them and tell them that it was impossible to be a Christian and a Democrat. And the ways that um, politics uh, really called into question their faith, but these women were willing to do it and how that has, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested. I, one of the things I want to do next is, is try to see how that has or has not continued um, as, as things have gone on. One of the things I was interested in in the 2020 Virginia election uh, for governor was the way that the suburbs uh, seem to have gone right back um, to voting for the GOP. So we'll see. Um, and so I did want to move you into asking you um, what it is you're working on now. And it sounds to me like you're looking at um, the evangel evangelical white women um, and, and to some degree what they're doing. How are you researching this? 
Yeah, so that's that's the hard thing. So I I have two projects going on right now. One of them is I'm trying to um, I'm trying to think about populism, the you know as we all are, um, but uh, people are trying to think about January sixth and um, you know all the Jesus flags and the Trump flags and the Christian flags that were inside the Capitol on January sixth. But when I looked at January 6th, what I saw were, uh, it was mostly men. <laughs> and um, there's a, the, the evangelical movement is like 60% women. <laughs> and so I'm trying to figure out how that populism is happening. What, what, what is that populism? What's happening with the women, right? Like, what did they think of January, of January 6th? So I'm trying, so it's, I'm, I'm on the internet trying to figure out how to see what the women are saying about Trump and January 6th and, and, and moving forward. So um, if anybody has an idea, please send me an email, how I can, how I can get to that. Um, I'm, you know, there's some online Bible studies and things like that. And then the other thing, um, the project that I'm really excited about, which is very different because it's more historical. It's not really ethnography. I uh, am working on writing the history uh, 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 doing the case history of the masterpiece cake shop case. Um, and I'm really excited about writing, uh, that case because that is that, that it really speaks to the masterpiece cake shop case really speaks to the thing that I try to write about in this book, which is in that, that like Jack Phillips, the baker in that case, he was not politically active and involved before, um, before he refused to bake the cake to celebrate the gay wedding. Um, and he really has, so it's a case where it came up organically and it was a person who was not trying to be involved in politics. He just refused to bake the cake because of his, um, his legitimately held religious beliefs, whatever one thinks of them. And so I think it really shines light on what happens when, um, pe- when people really live out the beliefs that I've uncovered um, in in this first book, and the other thing is if is what's going to happen if, as a country, we let um, capitalism essentially make uh, we let capitalism end um, equal access and equal opportunity, right? If we say that people's rights to commerce supersede people's rights to equal treatment, um, because that's going to be a real um, that's really scary if you ask me. And, and it's certainly in cases that we've seen things like this, obviously in the past with, you know, the heart of Atlanta hotel and, and so forth where we, you know, the commerce clause uh, has been relevant in so many. Well, it's, yeah, it's just, again, I mean, what the, what, what, what to my mind, and this may sound overly caustic, but to my mind, once again, oftentimes, you know, we who study politics, I think we can get very cynical. But to my mind, what the right, once again, is doing better than the left is finding, again, the word is insidious, finding insidious ways to um, make political gains at the expense of the left. And it's very easy to decry the loudest voices in the room, you know, the protesters on January 6th or Mitch McConnell and what he's doing with the court. And but um, it's 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 the sneaky it's the sneaky moves that really get me the trick plays that you're not expecting and the next thing you know we're 10 steps back 
Well, I appreciate you coming on the New Books Network to talk to me about this really fascinating book, Decoding the Digital Church. Um, And when those next books come out, I would love to talk to you again about them um, because I find your writing really captivating and the book was really fascinating. Um, So I want to thank Stephanie Martin, also known as Sam, um, for joining me today to talk about Decoding the Digital Church, Evangelical Storytelling and the Election of Donald Trump, published by the University of Alabama Press in 2021. I assume one can buy this at the University of Alabama Press's website. They can. And if they use the code DC Church, I think they'll get a discount. Capital capital D, capital C, H-U-R-C-H. So D Church. D you get Church. a discount. D All Church. Right. Yeah. Um, so if you're buying the book, use that that discount, that code, and you'll get a discount. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sam. This is a great opportunity. Thank you for having me. It's a wonderful conversation. My pleasure. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.